Well, this morning we're continuing our study in the book of Ruth. And we've gotten to chapter four. Um, I will be honest with you, I read chapter four several times and thought maybe this morning we would just um, read the scripture and close in prayer. Uh, and then about three weeks ago on a Tuesday night, I, I woke up about two o'clock in the morning and from two o'clock to about 3.30, it was just running through my mind. And when I got up the next day, I had um, the structure of, of where I want us to go this morning. And, and that structure um, may have been influenced by the fact that during that week, when I woke up in the middle of the night and thought through it, I had just gotten new glasses. And these are, you can't tell it because they're uh, progressive lenses. That's not a political statement. Um, but they have three different focal kind of sections, one for long distance, one for middle, and then one for up close. And um, they take a little bit of time to get used to. I've been spending a lot of time just kind of doing this. Um, and, and what I want to do this morning is take a look at Ruth 4 through three different lenses. You see the connection, Jeff? Thank you. I, that was one of the most genuine disruptive laughs that we've had so far. I'm so glad you're here. Um, the three lenses, let's, let's, here are the three lenses. Um, wait, let's do it. Here are the three, no, isn't that better? <laughs> here are the three lenses. Um, the first is the lens I call historical. And the historical lens is a time when we're just going to look and say, okay, what really happened um, in this? Because these are real people and a real place and real events. And, and so I want to spend some time and go through those 12 verses, the first 12 verses of chapter 4, and say, what is really happening here? And there's some strange stuff, at least to our ears. The second is what I've called the typological lens. And... I've got the question there, what does it mean? And we'll actually ask that question two different ways. First of all, what does typology mean? And then second, what does it mean for Ruth chapter four? And then finally, we'll close out with a missional lens. How should we, after reading chapter four, as Christians in West County, St. Louis, respond to that? So as we prepare to open God's word, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the worship that we've had and the chance to just sing to you our praises and to recognize that where we would be without your love and without your, your care for us. And so God, as we open your word and mine it for what you would have us to hear from it, I just pray that you would direct every idea, every passage, and that you would apply it in each of our hearts in exactly the way that your Holy Spirit would have it for us that all of it would bring glory to your name and advance your kingdom in your name. Amen. Okay, the first lens is historical, and this is the fourth of five messages in the, in the book of Ruth. Uh, next week, Adam's going to wrap it up with the last few verses in chapter four. It's a short book. We were able to cram five sermons into it, and and. If you've been with us for the whole series, then you know that it tells the story of Elimelech and Naomi who, and their two boys, Malon and Kilian, who go from Israel to Moab. And they go to avoid um, or to escape a famine and to find food and to find uh, a place where they can live. 
And while they're in Moab, the, both of their sons take Moabite women as their wives. And then in the first chapter of this book, Elimelech the dad and Killian and Malon, the boys, all die. We don't know how they died. It's just act one. And at the end of act one, Ruth, um, the daughter-in-law, goes with Naomi back to Israel. And, and, um, and then in act two of the book, we find Ruth gleaning in the fields, picking up whatever leftover grain she can find to feed both her and her mother-in-law, Naomi. And she's met with um, extraordinary kindness from a wealthy landowner named Boaz. And we come to find out that Boaz is actually related to Elimelech, who was Naomi's um, husband. And so because he's related to Naomi and Elimelech, um, he is a candidate for a role called the Kinsman Redeemer. And last two weeks ago, John Richardson talked about the, the biblical passages in, in the Old Testament that talk about the specifics of the kinsman redeemer. And there were two key ones that he talked about. One was that the land must transfer to a, a relative of whoever owned the land and died without an heir. And Elimelech died without an heir, so this land that Naomi has has to pass into the same family so that it stays in that family. And then the second re requirement of a kinsman redeemer was that they would, um, the, the widow of the, the dead man would be cared for through marriage to a brother-in-law. And John did a great job of helping us to see that, John did a great job of helping us to see that that, that not only was required in the law, but it was just it's weird. I mean, he, he just kind of, he, he really pointed out that to our modern sensibilities, that feels strange. It feels um, it's weird. If you think that feels weird, then let me tell you a true story. So 1951. 1951, a couple named Frank and Phyllis are married and they find out about a young girl who's pregnant and has really no idea what to do. And so they take this girl into their home and they, they agree that they'll care for her through the pregnancy and then they'll adopt the child when the baby's born. And tragically, as the pregnancy progresses, Frank is killed in a motorcycle accident. And Phyllis, who is suffering from type 1 diabetes. She's had it since a child, um, has bouts of sickness, is faced with trying to raise this baby on her own or put the pregnant girl out and let her to find another solution. And so this difficult situation finds a solution that feels like it's ripped directly from the Old Testament. Because Frank's younger brother, Art, marries Phyllis, and the baby, which is a little girl, they adopt and name her Jill. 
It happens, you know. Um, five years later, Phyllis um, passes away from uh, complications to the, from the diabetes. And then when Jill is 12, Art meets and marries Dorothy. And a year later, they welcome their firstborn son and name him Kevin. Um, and the thought that my father married his brother's widow has always made the book of Ruth kind of sit a little bit more personal for me. I mean, it fits the character that I knew of him, that he loved his family and he, he loved Christ and he was willing to make personal sacrifices when, when he saw that that was needed. Um, and I got to see how he loved my stepsister Jill through really difficult, difficult times. And it, it makes it so much easier for me to look at the book of Ruth and say, yeah, no, Boaz and Naomi and Ruth are real people. They're really experiencing real difficult situations. This redemption is not a, a lesson. It is a history. John also, two weeks ago, told us about how Naomi gave Ruth some, some weird instructions. There's a lot of weird in this story. If you read it, we're going to get to some today, too. And, and the weird instructions were how to let Boaz know that she would welcome him as a kinsman redeemer. And if you really are interested in that, and I think you should be, go back and listen to two weeks ago John's message on Ruth chapters two and three. Um, because it, it works, and Boaz gets the message, and he says, I will be the kinsman redeemer. However, there's a closer relative, and if he wants to redeem the land and care for for Ruth, then he gets first right of refusal. And so we, we left it two weeks ago with, um, with Boaz committing to, to secure the redemption one way or another, and Naomi telling Ruth, don't worry, he's going to settle it today. And so that's where we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter four. And the, the passage will be up on the screen. And um, let's read God's word beginning in verse 1. So Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. Just then the family redeemer he had mentioned came by, so Boaz called out to him, come over here and sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. So they sat down together, and then Boaz called 10 leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. Um, if you were the closer relative and you get the, hey, come over and sit down, friend, and then he says, just a minute, could we get the elders to just surround us here? I mean, you're wondering what is going on. You just have to wonder long because Boaz says, you know Naomi who came back from Moab. Well, she is selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I am next in line to redeem it after you. 
So Boaz shares the situation with the closer relative. Uh, he offers to step aside and let the other guy buy Elimelech's land. Um, interestingly, several sources suggest that this, because of Naomi's situation, would have been what we might call a distress sale. And that, that one of the things that would make this attractive is that the price would have probably been set in a way that, that it would have been attractive for this man to add the land to his property. The other thing is the way that land rights worked in Israel, if he bought the land, it belonged to him and his heirs for, uh, for many generations. It, it passed from, from father to son. And so that explains why his first response is, all right, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz told him, of course, you're, wait, don't miss those two words. Because Boaz says, of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way, she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. Now, there's a couple things that I learned as I, I studied this passage. Um, one is that because Boaz and the closer relative were not brothers of Malon, who was Ruth's dead husband, um, the law doesn't require them to marry her and be a kinsman redeemer. And there's a whole passage in the Old Testament about how you should treat a brother-in-law who refuses to be the kinsman redeemer. And that's not really what's going on here because those guys, neither of them were brothers for Malon. And so they, this, this, of course, um, doesn't refer back to, okay, legally you're required to, to marry Ruth. Um, in, in one of the commentaries by Matthew Henry, he suggests that Maybe Naomi had set this requirement um, as a condition of the sale of the land. And so that's a possibility that she said, okay, if anybody buys this land, they have to marry Ruth. Um, it's also possible that this was kind of an extended custom of the, the, the law, but it's not specifically required by the law. In, in any event, it doesn't seem like the, the closer relative reacts, well, that's not what the law says. Instead, the closer, react, the closer relative simply accepts the condition and answers, then I can't redeem it because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land, I cannot do it. I said we had some weird coming up. Here you go, you ready? Now in those days, it was custom in Israel for anyone transferring a right of purchase to remove his sandal and hand it to the other party. This publicly validated the transaction. So the other family redeemer drew off his sandal and said to Boaz, you buy the land. Um, I think it's weird to have a sandal ceremony when you buy property. Some of you are realtors. I don't think we do that anymore. Um, in fact, notice that this verse starts with, now in those days, it was the custom in Israel which means that when this is written down, probably a couple hundred years after the events took place, that it, it was no longer the custom in Israel. And, um, and that means that it wasn't a very long-lasting custom. But I did, I did study it a little bit, and if your small groups meet and talk about the sermon, you are welcome to go as deep as you want on the sandal ceremony. Um, but one of the things that, that I thought was 
particularly interesting was tying this back to um, what God told Moses and then again told Joshua as he led the Israelites into the promised land, which was, I will give you all of the land you set your foot on. And, and one commentator said that this, this sandal ceremony was really just a way that it symbolized here, I'm giving you the right to basically act like you're me. You have the right to this property, it's yours. And so that's, that's one of the connections. It's interesting, but we don't know for sure. Let's go back um, to chapter four, verse nine now. Then Boaz said to the elders and to the crowd standing around, you are witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Imelech, Kilian, and Malon. And with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. So Boaz makes it official in the presence of the elders, the other witnesses, um, that he's going to fulfill the role of a kinsman redeemer. He's gonna buy the land and acquire Ruth. Um, that acquire Ruth thing sounds a little bit uncomfortable to me. Um, I like how Eugene Peterson kind of puts it in today's language in his paraphrase of the Bible called The Message when he says that Boaz, he has Boaz say, I am acquiring responsibility for Ruth and I will take her as my wife. And that's really what's happening here is Boaz is stepping up and saying, I am taking responsibility for the care of Ruth and I will marry her and take her as my wife. Then the elders and all of the people standing around in the, standing in the gate replied, we are witnesses, may the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, from whom all the nation of Israel descended. May you prosper in Ephratah and be famous in Bethlehem. Ephratah is just another word for Bethlehem or the region that Bethlehem is in. And may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of our ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. Now, this morning, if we were going to keep the historical lens on, then one direction we could go with the message is to really dive into the connections between what's happening with Boaz and Ruth and Rachel and Leah and Perez and Tamar and, and um, Judah. But, but we have two more lenses that we wanna look through this to view this passage. And so um, if you want, you can dig in there. But before we move on from the history and with apologies to the divine author of Ruth, it feels like there's a deleted scene in chapter four. Um, I don't know about you, when I get a DVD, sometimes I like to look at the, de the, the, related, the deleted scenes, or you can get those now in streaming, they'll say, okay, deleted scenes, okay. Why did they leave that out? Sometimes it's really obvious, sometimes not. Um, I think there's a missing scene in Ruth, because in chapter three, we leave Ruth and Naomi with the promise that, yep, Boaz is gonna take care of it before the day is out. And, and then we see Boaz at the city gate taking care of it, and we don't know where Ruth and Naomi are, and I really would like to see this scene. I really would like to see Boaz come to Ruth and say, 
the redemption's taken care of. And now you can be my wife and we can, we can go forward as a family. Wouldn't you love to see that scene? And it's, it's just, it, it just feels like it's missing. Um, let's look at the second lens. And that's the one um, that I've called Christian typology. So um, I'll let you in on a little something. When I get to speak up here, I write out the manuscript or I, I make extensive notes. And, and then before I come up before you, I give it to my wife, Pam, and she reads it, takes all the heresy out of it. Um, thank you. And, and then she, she makes observations and suggestions. Some of the really, if, if there's anything good in here, sometimes it's, it's just Pam saying, what about this? Um, this lens, the typology lens, um, she said, you know, I get what you're doing, but it's, it's pretty technical. And it goes really down into the, the weeds, the details. And I said, I know, I think it's so cool and I really want to keep it in. Um, and so I kept it in because I get to decide what you hear. And, and so I just want to acknowledge up front that some of this gets a little bit detail-y and it's okay. Um, you can, you can um, find Pam after the service and agree with her. Or you can find me and tell me that I was right to leave it in. I mean, it's up to you. Um, but the second lens is, is something called Christian typology, and I just got really fascinated as I, as I dug into this. And so I wanted to share some of it with you. Here's a definition. I've got three. Typology is a Christian form of biblical interpretation that proceeds on the assumption that God placed anticipations of Christ in the laws, events, and people of the Old Testament. Okay? That it's, it's the assumption that God placed anticipations of Christ in the laws, events, and people of the Old Testament that show up and reflected in Christ. It's uniquely Christian because no other religious text of any other religion is written over millennia and purports to connect things that happened thousands of years ago with things that happened in Judea 2,000 years ago and, and, and assumes that connection. And so this is, this is ours. This is a Christian interpretation of Christian scriptures. And in the language of typological interpretation, then the things in the Old Testament are called types. And that's where the name comes from. And these types then refer forward to things that happen in the New Testament. Here's another definition. Um, a type is a literary device designed to foreshadow a future event. A type cannot be used, well, hold on, stay with that first sentence for a minute, because a type is a literary device to foreshadow a future event. Now, if this was in a movie or in a video game, then what would that be called? It would be called an Easter egg. And I thought about it, and I thought, oh, that's cool. Because it's foreshadowing the redemption that is achieved at Easter. So I don't know if all those movie and video fandoms know how on the nose their, their phrase is, but, but their, the, the idea of typology is that the Old Testament is filled with Easter eggs that literally point to Easter. 
Next sentence, a type cannot be used to introduce new doctrine. Types can only reiterate, <laughs> types can only reiterate that which was plainly stated in scripture. And this is, this is the caution, this is the boundary. Um, you may have heard sermons where they can go way over the edge and saying, you know what, this, this sandal ceremony really means that we need to do this in our lives. And, and we have to be careful with typological interpretation that nothing that we interpret from the type in the Old Testament goes beyond what's clearly stated in Scripture. That's, that's the boundary. And then there are two requirements to identify a type that, that come through a number of sources. One is types require historical correspondence, and they require escalation to connect them to the ultimate expression in Christ. Now let's talk a little about those two conditions. You see how it gets technical? This is what Pam warned you about. The historical correspondence has to do with the way that real people, events, and institutions in the Old Testament match each other with what they're pointing to in the New Testament. And the escalation has to do with the way that we move from the initial instance and we gather steam in the uphill climb until the type finds fulfillment in its ultimate expression. And so I want to give you a few examples. Um, here, are, here are a few that, that we can see the Old Testament pointing to our ultimate redemption in Christ. Adam. In fact, Paul refers to Adam and, and then says that Christ is the second Adam, right? There's a connection there and a correspondence. Uh, Noah's Ark demonstrates God using a, a means to rescue people from the effects of sin, which corresponds but then is escalated in Christ's rescuing us. Jonah, Jonah foreshadows Christ's death and burial and resurrection. In fact, in, in Matthew 12, this is what Jesus says. An evil and adulterous generation craves a sign, yet no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Because just as Jonah was in the stomach of the sea creature for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. It's a great dem demonstration of correspondence. And, and Jesus calls it out. Um, Joseph's story charts God working through the obedience of one man to rescue a nation. Moses' story is similar. The Passover lamb is a clear example. In fact, the placing of the sins on the Passover lamb just so beautifully reflects and foretells what Christ will do in, in his sacrifice. The bronze serpent in the book of Exodus. Um, you may remember that in Exodus, God, the, the people are sick, and God says to Moses, build a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and lift it up, and then you will, as they look onto it, they will be healed, right? And Jesus refers to this as well. So if we look in John 3, 14 and 15, Jesus says, and as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on the pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. So we see both the correspondence, the bronze serpent lifted up and Jesus lifted up, 
But this is also the best example of escalation that I can find. Because the bronze serpent provided physical healing for the people of Israel, and Christ being lifted up provided spiritual healing for humanity. That's escalation. And, and most of you know that what comes after John 3, 14, and 15, right? What comes after John 3, 14, and 15? John 3, 16, right? How many of you memorize John 3, 16, right? Um, how many of you memorize John 3, 16 in the New Living Translation that we use here at First Free? Yeah, me either. Um, but I memorized, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When Christ is lifted up, then that redemption comes for all of us. So here's the question, and it's the question at the center of Christian typology. And that is, did God know when he gave the instructions to Moses to make the snake and, lift, and put it on a pole and lift it up, that a few thousand years later, Jesus would use that historical example to help people understand the salvation that he was bringing and the way that he was bringing it. I mean, isn't that like the greatest Easter egg ever? And, and because we know that God knows all, we know that the answer to that has to be yes, and so it just changes the way that I, and hopefully you, can read the Hebrew Scriptures. The history of Israel now takes on so much meaning for you and I who are adopted into Christ's family. So let's get back to Boaz and see how Boaz points to Jesus. And here, in my preparation, I've been helped a lot by an article from a pastor and theologian, uh, theology professor, Michael Chase. And the title of the article is, a true and greater Boaz, typology and Jesus in the book of Ruth. And I ran this by John Richardson and Andrew Miller, and I said, okay, am I, am I okay here? Is this guy legit? Is he a crank? Right now, if you're gonna quote anybody, you gotta Google him first and find out, okay, is this okay? And, and both of them said, yep, good, solid teaching, which I feel better about. Um, in the article, Professor Chase outlines seven ways that Boaz foreshadows Christ. And he, he looks at both the correspondence and the escalation. And, and I want to go through those. I'm going to go through them pretty quickly. But if this is something that's interesting to you, then just shoot me an email at kevin at efree.org. And I will share the link to Professor Chase's article because he goes into uh, some depth about typology and what the restrictions should be on it and how we use it carefully. And then he goes into more detail than I'm going to have time to cover here in each of these seven areas. So let me give you Professor Chase's seven observations about Boaz foreshadowing Christ. Here they are. So first, they're both from the tribe of Judah. And second, they're both from Bethlehem. And we'll see next week that those things are important because Boaz is in the line of Christ. And so when Adam 
wraps up our sermon series, and hopefully I'm not stealing his, his thunder here this morning, um, but he's out of town, and, and probably even as well, he's probably watching. Hi, Adam. Um, I get to choose what we say. So um, next week we'll see that, that being in the tribe of Judah and being from Bethlehem are, are key to being part of the lineage of Christ. Um, the third one there is kind, constant acts of kindness. And we see in Boaz this compassion that he has for Ruth before he even knows who she is. He gives the instructions to care for her and to provide for her and to treat her well. Um, and that is that corresponds to how Jesus heals the sick and, and eats with the tax collectors and um, just invites in and socializes and relates with people that the rest of society would, would shun and send away. Number four is abundant provider. And, and this one is reflected from Boaz providing food for Ruth and Naomi several times in this short book and Jesus feeding the 5,000 and providing so much for those around him. Um, goes above and beyond the law, what the law requires. Um, and Professor Chase says, look, Boaz wasn't required to marry Ruth, but he steps up and he does so much more. Um, Jesus said he didn't come to change the law or to strike it down, but to fulfill it. And in the Sermon on the Mount, what really kind of rang true for me was those times when Jesus says, you have heard it said this, the law, but I tell you this, holy living. Jesus goes above and beyond the law. Now those, those five I thought were interesting, but these last two really bring it home for me. In Boaz, we see a picture of the kinsman redeemer. And even though Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25 have all of the the legal details of what a kinsman redeemer must do, and John went through those a couple weeks ago. There's only one instance of an actual kinsman redeemer in the whole Old Testament, and that's Boaz. And there's one, only one instance of a redeemer for you and me, only one option, and that's Jesus. That's correspondence and that's escalation. And finally, Boaz takes a foreign bride. And we know that Jesus calls the church his bride. And, and this bride, this church, is from every nation in the world. I mean, like Ruth, you and I are hopeless. And we are in desperate need of the intervention of a redeemer. And like Ruth, we stand before our redeemer who is offering us a life that we could never earn on our own. First Peter says this, for you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began, but now, in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. Christ is our kinsman redeemer. Okay, 
Let's go back to that deleted scene. You know, the one where Boaz comes and tells Ruth, hey, it's on, we're good, let's go. And, and let's imagine for a moment uh, an alternate ending, right? And in this alternate ending, Boaz comes and says, hey, it's good, I arranged the redemption, we can get married, and Ruth says, a courteous no thank you, which is crazy. Actually had in the first service somebody gasped, right? It's that nuts. Why would she do that? And yet, and yet we stand, so many of us, so many people stand before Christ the Redeemer and reply with a courteous no thank you. In fact, Matthew Henry in his commentary on Ruth chapter four talks about this rejection of Christ's offer. Now, he's focusing on the closer relative, but it fits. He says, men are ready to seize opportunities for increasing their estates, but few know the value of godliness. They attend not to the concerns of their souls, but reject the salvation of Christ for fear of marring their inheritance. This makes many people reluctant to receive the great redemption. They are not willing to take up a religious faith. They've heard good things about it. They have nothing bad to say against it and will say good things about it, but at the same time, they are willing to leave it to one side. They do not want to be committed to it for fear of spoiling their inheritance in this world. Get this, they could be happy about heaven, but they are not in the slightest interested in holiness because holiness does not sit happily alongside what they want out of life. So whoever else may pay that price for heaven, they themselves do not want it. In other words, they reply with a courteous, no thank you. And I know it's possible that, that somebody is here and this idea of the redemption provided by Christ is strange or new, it's the first time you've heard it, and maybe you've heard about it for years, but while you don't have anything bad to say about it, you haven't really accepted it for yourself. And so we're gonna end in a little bit, and I want you to know that there will be people up front that would love to talk to you about it, help you to understand what it is that Jesus is offering in his redemption. As we finish up, we have one more lens. So we've covered the historical lens, we've covered the typological lens, and now we get to what I believe is the missional lens. And I find this in so many different places throughout the New Testament. What are we called to do? Here are some verses. Uh, Philippians 2.5 says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Christ, our kinsman redeemer. In Matthew 25, verse 40, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Most of us know that the it is visiting the people in prison and clothing the naked and feeding the hungry and caring for the sick. 
We're called to do that. In James, it says, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Um, I have a note in the manuscript here that um, the time for caring for orphans is not past. In fact, um, the, the current court cases that might change the laws of our nation um, could very possibly usher in a time when there's even a greater need for the church to step up and care for orphans. And, and I just, I pray that, that God would place that on our hearts and that, that that would be a shining example of God working his redemption through us. Here's another verse, Matthew 6, 19. Jesus says, don't store up treasures here on earth. If you were here last week, Adam preached on that. In fact, we had a great week last week. I hope you were here because last week, um, we just celebrated something new that First Free is doing by partnering with Compassion International to plant a church in Peru. And it comes out of an offering we took last year and a partnership with Compassion International and, and a site in Peru that now we're excited to build a church and to see that, reach that area. And, and there are children in and around where the church is being planted that need sponsorships through Compassion International. And last week, this church sponsored more than 141 kids. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Um, I, I did the math, and a little bit you're going to see a video that kind of summarizes last week and also shows some pictures from our party that we had in the parking lot. Um, I did the math. You and I together pledged over $64,000 a year to care for those kids in Peru. That's just, that's, that's what the missional imperative can look like. Jesus, Jesus said in John, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. And, and as we wrap up here, I wanna finish with a quote from uh, Paul David Tripp in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. And the theme has all been about the Redeemer. And here's what Paul David Tripp says, and I think it sums up everything that we're, we're trying to accomplish this morning. He says, the good news of the kingdom is not freedom from hardship, suffering, and loss. It's the news that, of a Redeemer who has come to rescue me from myself. His rescue produces change that fundamentally alters my response to these inescapable realities. The Redeemer turns rebels into disciples, fools into humble listeners. He makes cripples walk again. In him, we can face life and respond with faith, love, and hope. That's what Jesus does for us. For you and me and for anyone else who accepts the redemption that he offers. But there's more. And here's where the quote continues. As he changes us, he allows us to be part of what he's doing in the lives of others. As you respond to the Redeemer's work in your life, you can learn to be an instrument in his hands.
Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the, the comprehensive connections that point to the redemption that you offer through your death and resurrection. Help us to receive that and help it to transform us into instruments in your hands. May it serve to advance your kingdom here and in Peru and around the world, and may it bring more glory to your name.